Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. At 22, Jenna founded Bloodwater alongside the band Jars of Clay. Since 2004, she's worked to build and grow the organization and continues to lead the overall vision and strategy while traveling often to Africa. Tonight, she joins us to discuss and sign her new book, 1000 Wells. Please join me in welcoming Jenna Lee Nardella. It is so good to see all of you here. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy weeks to spend a moment and um, get to share some stories that um, have come out of um, this book. And um, I'll start with telling a story about the first time that I fell down a mountain um, because it was unexpected and most falls are. But I was 17 years old and my friends and I were hiking in the Indian Peaks Wilderness here in Colorado. And as we reached the 13,000 foot summit, the wind picked up and the rain turned to a downpour. Um, but the views, they were like a drug. They were stealing breath and thought and awareness. And I felt the flush of wonder as I looked across that open tundra. So after cozying ourselves for a time behind the protection of a stone wall, we began our descent. And as we scurried down the steep slope, we were chatting as water beat down our brightly colored jackets. And the rocks, of course, were wet from the rain, but we were used to such conditions. Lightning, thunder, hail, it was all part of the adventure. But suddenly my boot slipped on the wet scree beneath me and I fell forward. And my body picked up momentum, flipping several times downward and only stopping because I smacked into a boulder. So though my hip and my shoulders throbbed and my forehead was bleeding, what I felt most intensely was the shock of my own carelessness. I had climbed enough mountains to know the dangers of getting too comfortable. But there I was, bruised and bleeding, no longer trusting the trail beneath me. My work in Africa and the pursuit of justice, like a mountain storm, blindsided me just when I thought I knew what I was doing. But no one tells you about the mess that comes with doing a good thing in the world, or at least trying to do a good thing in the world. Or maybe they do, but you stand convinced that your story is different than theirs. You see, I was 21 years old when I committed myself to a vision that included serving African villages where women and children walk more than five miles a day to find water to keep them alive. It included advocating for families whose immune systems were so weak from HIV that diseases in that water caused mothers to bury their babies and children to bury their parents. It has included building an organization over the last 11 years that has provided clean water for more than a million people in Africa. But it has also included the consistent urge to walk away. And as an American in the millennial generation, I came of age in a culture of self-actualization, instant gratification. And I was ill-prepared for the work and patience that justice requires. 
So just when I thought I knew what I was doing, Africa blindsided me with the hard truth that redeeming and restoring is a lifelong commitment. In the same way, Americans' attention span has shortened to sound bites and Facebook likes. But the work of justice requires that we dig in for the long haul, give our lives and image away, and be willing to wage a long defeat on behalf of the poor. There is no better place to learn this lesson than the Marsabit Desert of northern Kenya. It's close to the border of Ethiopia. And its landscape is difficult to explain because it's a place of such extremes. It's not just hot, it's oppressively hot. And it's not just dry, it's earth-crumblingly dry. It's not just poor, it's desperately poor. As you fly above the region, the land below looks like the surface of the moon. You see twisters of sand and dust and heat dancing across the barren landscape. You feel thirsty just looking at the vast desert. The first time I visited, we landed on a dirt airstrip, and a man named Yegon met us. And Yegon and his team were committed to bringing health and clean water to communities that had no such access. The inhabitants of this desert are a nomadic people, so they travel for days to find remnants of vegetation for their animals to eat and to live. And one need only be in Marsabit for a day to feel the dramatic effects of a water crisis. So Yegon had a vision, and he wanted us to see it. We traveled for hours across this moon-like terrain until we found ourselves in remote schools where a hundred children gathered to learn among an expanse of twisters and dust. Yegon introduced us to the teachers he had been working with on the plans for rainwater catchment tanks. The vision was bold, and we were bound together in the conviction that the plans were possible to execute, and we could see real change happening in a place that most of the world had virtually ignored. The next year, I returned to the desert of Marsabit and traveled for hours with Yegon to witness the craftsmanship of the school's new rainwater catchment tanks, the newly constructed earthen dam for the animals, and the impressive engineering of the deep well boreholes that were drilled successfully in one of Earth's harshest environments. The vision that Yegon had laid out for us and that we had funded had taken shape, but there was one problem— no water. And so when I turned the tap connected to the storage tanks, I felt only hot air. I walked up the hill to view the edge of the dam, and what was supposed to be filled with water for animals was just a cracked prune of a landscape. A goat lay on its side in the dusty sand, dead from dehydration. The new borehole was nearly dry, eking out an insufficient of stream of water we'd designed to serve hundreds of people and their 7,000 animals. Instead, scattered herds of camels and donkeys stood with their owners, waiting their turn to drink from the dribble of the trough. Marsabit had been suffering a severe and unexpected drought for more than a year. The water storage had run out nearly six months earlier. Mothers, fathers, babies, camels, donkeys, goats, they were all continuing to fight a, life, a long defeat of life with no water, which just doesn't leave much life after all. And as I stood under the merciless sun, it became clear to me that the laws of return on investment don't apply in many places around the world. The unjust forces of nature can cripple even the strongest, most capable person, community, or ideal. 
In this case, all the persistence, money, and work that the people of Marsibit and Bloodwater had done over the years came to nothing tangible. People and animals were still dying from a drought that mocked our best intentions. As Americans, many of us assume that if something needs to be done, there is a way to do it. But sometimes human capability meets its threshold, and we learn the truth about what we can and cannot do. In Marsibit, we can partner with the best organization in the region. We can raise all the money we need, mobilize the communities with excellent methods, train in best practices of hygiene, build solid latrines, construct foolproof rain tanks. But we cannot make the rain. And I hadn't considered what would happen if a project failed, if clouds refused to shower on certain parts of the earth. So far, I had only experienced the windfall of blessing, and I suppose I expected it to stay with me. But Marsibit is a place that will make you question many truths you thought you understood about the world. How hard work pays off. How hope comes through in the end. How God is merciful. My convictions began to crumble like dirt beneath my feet. I thought I could change Africa until I realized that I could not make the rain come. And Marsibit was like the mountain of my youth. I wasn't seasoned enough to expect the fumbling and the stumbling, the head over head falling, the stillness after impact. The American church might be experiencing that same kind of surprise especially because it has been like a millennial in its attention span for justice. We passed around a documentary about children affected by a war in Uganda. We gave up our birthdays for clean water. We marked red X's on our hands and bought shoes that gave a pair to another. We made a stand and started our own nonprofits. We self-actualized through sharing our voices on blogs, and we mobilized resources. There was momentum, and we could feel it, a sense that people of faith have caught onto the fact that Jesus actually cared about the poor and the marginalized. The church put aside fear and judgment and took up mercy and generosity by pushing the U.S. government to do something about the AIDS crisis in Africa. Christians mobilized support for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which is now sustaining the lives of millions of HIV-positive men, women, and children around the globe. That was a 180-degree turn from a Barna poll in 2001 that stated only 3% of evangelical Americans would be willing to help someone with HIV. But then the red campaign faded in its coolness. The work of doing good got inconvenient, and other things caught our attention. My question today is, will we dig in for the long haul, give our lives an image away, and be willing to wage a long defeat on behalf of the poor. Trust me, the glitz of standing for a cause will wear off. (laughs) Maybe the leaders of the organizations we've followed disappoint us. Maybe we find out that doing good is messy, more complex than we want, the problems more convoluted, the solutions less clear than our slogans suggest. Or we face our own marsivits, where the rain just won't come. And we grow weary. We lose sight of the vision. We even question whether justice and mercy are worth the pursuit. We have an urge to grab on to the next big thing, to start something else. 
You see, we need to feel the gratification of our goodwill. We want to see its immediate results. And the world is going to move faster and continue to tempt us to abandon the disciplines of patience, presence, prayer, steadfastness, relationship, consistency, faithfulness, hope. Smartwatches, quicker turnarounds, and the speed of consumption fool us into thinking that redemption is fast. But I still think there are truths about the world that we ought not ignore amidst the sheen of the immediate. If you, look at the, if you look at the amount of time in Africa that it takes for corn to grow, or for a girl to walk with her bucket to the nearest watering hole, you find that the pace of life and the growth of people follow the pace and growth of the land. Or, if you're witness to the achievement of a community coming together to build its own rainwater catchment tank, only to be followed by an unexpected season of drought you begin to expect a slow-paced and uneven path in all things. And as we continue to address the world's injustices, that path will probably be the same. In Kenya, they say pole pole, or slowly by slowly. In Zambia, they say panono panono, brick by brick. And they're not referring just to speed or pace, but also that uneven, up and down, three steps forward, two steps back nature of both work and life amidst challenging circumstances, broken relationships, and deep-set cultural constraints. There's never an expectation that life will go smoothly or that you will reach your destination with expediency. Slowly by slowly expects ebb and flow. It sees healthcare happening in the midst of overwhelming sickness. It brings 10,000 liters of water, even if 100,000 are needed. Brick by brick, there are hospital wings and freshwater wells, and yet millions more women continue to walk miles for water. Slowly by slowly, we expect to wage the long defeat and seek after the new heavens in the midst of a nearly blinding brokenness. Let us remember that the work of justice is a long-suffering narrative, both for the individuals who are today enduring the brunt of the world's worst injustices and for the people of faith committed to moving the needle. Martin Luther King Jr. rightfully noted, human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. It requires the tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. And he would know. As I look at my own life, saturated by expectations of expediency, ease, and self-actualization, I tremble at Dr. King's words. Because it means that the pursuit of justice will cost something significant and that it will not be easy. As the idealism fades, do I have what it takes to stay with it? As the world moves on to other flashy invitations, do we have the wherewithal to stick with the causes we said we cared about five years ago? Do we have the will to sustain slowly by slowly commitments into the next five years? I love the call in Isaiah 58 because it delivers an ambitious mandate for those of us who seek to examine issues of justice, poverty, faith, and conviction. Isaiah says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, 
to loose the chains of injustice and undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? The call is to loose the bonds of injustice, undo the thongs of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, clothe the naked. But let me be a witness that these are not things that happen all at once. They are not once and done actions that you check off like a task list and move on to the next new thing. The challenge is to wake up each day and live out the actions of Isaiah slowly by slowly as you faithfully enter into the world. They do not require the best technology, a fancy brand, or even the promise of shining results. But they do require the commitment to be present, to be consistent, and to be willing to be there with the people and places for the long haul. Loose, undo, share, bring, clothe. Our pursuit of justice ought not be a sprint. And real change happens in stops and starts. Accomplishment mingles with failure. And we need to give ourselves permission to accept that we will experience both. I had once thought that hope was easy. Belief in the good came easily to me. And now I realize that it was passion that came easily. When I was a young adult, my passions were a gift. They propelled me forward. But at some point, that wind disappears. And hope must take over while you wait, expectant in still waters. True hope is always hard. It's not a passive wishing. It's an active exercise, a choice, an intention. Hope means giving up apathy and despair and instead embracing the uncertainty that terrifies you. It's the sacrifice of keeping your heart soft. It's the determination to stick with it, even if you may not succeed. Why would you build a rain tank when you have lived a year under cloudless skies? Why would you teach your neighbors how to care for water when there is no water to care for? Why risk the fool by believing in a good God when the earth continues to stand dry and children die watching for rain? When I look at the deserts of Africa, sometimes I wonder if the tears of the grieving are the only drops of water that come. And I pray, but with disbelief. When I was in high school, my classmates voted me most likely to devote my life to a lost cause. (laughs) And some days I take it as a compliment. (laughs) But the thing about lost causes is that they're only lost if you leave them behind. And because of resistance, you may want to write them off. But if you stay in there, And if you keep hoping in action, if not in feeling, you may discover that they are not lost after all. You may discover that they are the most beautiful, extravagant examples of abundance in your life. You may start keeping your eyes open to causes that seem the most lost of all. But it's not easy, and it is a slowly-by-slowly experience. Flying back to Marsivit two years later after the drought, I saw a different land. 
day in and day out, the people of Marsabit had continued on with utter resilience to survive. They faithfully built the rain tanks and repaired the dams as dust devils swept across the land. They developed health and hygiene clubs. They dug pit latrines, and they carried on with the commitment to improve their lives regardless of the circumstances that they could not control. Many people in the U.S., myself included, would consider an empty rain tank a failure. But with dignity, responsibility, and hope, these communities had pressed on. And the rains had finally come one October, and the skies filled the tanks and the dams with water as if it were manna from heaven. And because the people of Marsabit had worked throughout the drought to construct the catchment system, they were able to collect every drop. But it's not a perfect story, and it probably never will be. There are still stretches of drought and too many deaths and way too many three steps forward, two steps back experiences. But look at the commitment they made to stay with it, with hope and resilience. And we are committed to Marsabit, to standing with them through the hardships, even when our expectations of success are not met. We've been walking with them now for nearly eight years and are seeing small and slow change. And it will probably take another eight years to see just a little bit more. In the beginning days, I thought that blood water and the vision was mine to accomplish. And the truth is, it never was mine. The work of healing and redeeming a broken world belongs to God. I have a small part to play, and I am responsible for that part. But in the end, it's not on my shoulders. Our calling is to do the one more thing in front of us, and then the next. And if stepping into this calling means stepping into hard times, don't we want to be there still? The surprising truth about changing the world is that when we care for our part in the world, the God of heaven knits these small pieces together into something beautiful. But... We're not called to change the world. We're called to love the world. And to love the world, we are the ones who must change. Each of you is writing a story with your life. And your job is to step into the world and put into practice that which you have been given. To consider what it looks like to pursue justice in a slowly by slowly and committed way. How will you develop the spiritual, emotional, and physical tools to be agents of that slow yet desperately needed renewal? If we can remain faithful to our calling to care for the orphan and the widow and the thirsty and the oppressed, faithful through the stops and starts, faithful through desperate days of cloudless skies, faithful through the despair or disinterest, then we will see how our collective commitments will tear at a corner of the darkness. We will be a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Our people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. We will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And as we seek to faithfully love the world slowly by slowly, let us watch and wonder what God will do. Thank you. Invite my friend and colleague, Dan Hasseltine, who is the lead singer of Jars of Clay, 
and the my co-founder come up for a conversation. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jenna. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. I just think Denver must be a very literary town <laughs> because uh, we don't. We've been not seeing quite as many people at these events. Um, uh, except for here, you guys have definitely uh, been the largest crowd we've had so far, which is fantastic. So thank you for uh, the support. Um, so, Jenna, let's just uh, – we've, we've been traveling around. We, we started over on the East Coast um, and in kind of in the South and the Carolinas and in Tennessee on this book tour, which has given us uh, kind of a chance to – to talk uh, quite a bit about the beginnings of Bloodwater and um, just the ongoing story of what we're, we've been um, been a part of, the privilege of being a part of. Uh, and as I've really gotten to to recognize the grandioseness, the 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 grandeur of this story that we are a part of. Um, what a daunting task to write it, to write something about um, a decade of struggle that is pulling cultures together and figuring out what it means to love people well and to find, you know, a human motive in the midst of um, big causes and and grand declarations about saving the world. Um what was harder to write? Was it harder to start this book or was it harder to finish this book? Well, both. Um, actually, it's so crazy to realize that um, I had the core of the book written and couldn't just not figure out the ending nor the beginning. And uh, eventually, finally got the last, the last thing we did was the beginning, which is interesting. But I kind of think about it when I was in high school and you had to write like a thesis and then you're supporting paragraphs and then you realize your thesis was different than when you started because you discovered it along the way. So I kind of had to, I had to do that in a really long, <laughs> long process. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, how do you draw somebody in? Um, into a world without being um, too, too dramatic or too obscure um, and invite... Um, invite a friend into and feel as though they can come along in the journey. Yeah. So every every chapter, you know, you're recognizing that there is a story in every community and every person that you've met, and every uh, and every kind of conversation that that helped build uh, this idea and concept of blood water into something where people could get their hands dirty. And um, was it was it a challenge to to move from a place you know to to, to kind of find that balance of here is your um, uh, you know you could go really deep in some of these stories and you could really kind of you could you kind of dredge the very bottoms of these these places um, but then you could you could stay very shallow at the same time um, how difficult was that to find that that space where you felt like you were honoring the stories um, but also um, giving enough of it to where where people would would know how it connected to the next part of the story the next part of the book I had to learn that the that the act of writing is 
can't be that self-indulgent. Um, because the stories that I wanted to write and the, the details that I wanted to go down wouldn't necessarily serve the, the reader. Um, it was just more nostalgic for me, or it mattered to me, but maybe wasn't going to help move that story along. And so I had to look at it pretty objectively and ask the question over and over again, does this person's story contribute to helping serve the reader as they go through this journey? Um, I had like seven chapters about my camp experiences in Colorado, and they were like, and that's great, but uh, let's, you know, and I had... That's another book. Yes, that's absolutely. Book. Um, but I had all these, I had so many people of stories that I wanted to tell, and it was very difficult to have to remember that I had to serve the story and not my own hopes of capturing everything. Um, talk about, you know, standing at the Grand Canyon and taking a picture, and you've experienced something, and then you take that picture back and you try to show it to someone, and it just, it's a shadow of what your experience was. And I think writing the book feels but a shadow of what it really was, and you kind of just have to live with that and, and trust that you've done as best a job as you can to help people come along even though they weren't actually there with you. Yeah. So it's often said that, that um, for writers, um, the last thing in the world writers want to do is write. They they will do anything else. If you know an author, ask them to vacuum your home, and they will be over in a second. Um, if uh, <laughs> writers don't like to write, but at some point you have to find that space where where you can you can settle in and you can be inspired and you can be drawn into the pages as you create. Um, where was that for you? Well, writers like to romanticize about writing and the process, but don't actually like to do it. And so um, we had this beautiful loft in our house with a spiral staircase and decorated it perfectly, had all these inspiring quotes, perfect desk, perfect light, everything. And my first day that I was there alone in the house, ready to just dive into it, the end of the day, I ended up like on the carpet in tears <laughs> with nothing written, like nothing. So the, the perfection of it just didn't work at all. So um, my best spaces that I found were actually coffee shops and bookstores. And I think the coffee shop for me was... Um, public pressure to stay productive and I couldn't like sprawl out and feel sorry for myself in tears on the floor. Um, so I had to be on my best behavior, which was really good. Um, and then the bookstores were my favorite when I couldn't find words, um, or a voice or a way to come in or out of a chapter because then I would just like go find a book that's inspired me or these voices or just ways that people have written. And, and then I feel in the company cause I'll just sit and look and be like, how does somebody write a book? And then you look around and you're like, but they all did it. And so then I just, you know, feel inspired in that way. Lots of coffee, lots of books. Yeah. And I think over there, even there is even a book called Writing for Dummies too. So like, it's not terribly inspiring, however. Um, so let's get into the, um, the actual kind of story of Bloodwater uh, a little bit. Um, it takes a long time for an organization to figure out what it really wants to be. Um, not unlike when you describe, we write our thesis and then we, we fill in these points to try to uh, prove that, that thesis. And we realize that, Oh, maybe, maybe it's something else. Um, a lot of organizations over time 
find that that is also true of their trajectory, their path. And, um, and what you do in that process is you start developing um, a set of values, you know, uh, something that you can, you can understand this is where we've come from. And these are the things that will be the non-negotiables in the way that we deal with people and the way that we move this story forward and do the work that we do. So um, for Bloodwater, we've sculpted ourselves into uh, a set of values, things like integrity, um, teachability, community, responsibility, dignity. But all of those were not things that we just made the list and said, oh, yeah, that's, that's going to be a great one. Um, they were somewhat proven to us in the actual work of trying to figure out which ones were going to stick. Um, do you have any examples, any stories that you can share that might describe when you found and you realized that one of those, uh, I mean, and they're all important, but when that list started to kind of be more clear and you said, Oh yeah, this one has got to be on that list. I think the one that I encountered first in the founding of Bloodwater was the core value of community. And I see it both in how we tried to start up a nonprofit in the U.S. Um, to raise money to support organizations in Africa and how, um, how the work in Africa could actually be done. And, um, and again, I think in our culture that has become so individualized, so me, 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 I think what has been so powerful is to realize what happens when people come together. And it seems so simple or so trite, but it's so true. And, um, and you, can, you can do a project in Africa for a community, and you can guarantee that you'll be there a year or two later, and it won't be there, or it will be broken, or there won't be a sense of ownership. Um, but if you, what I learned, what we learned early on in the beginning years was like change happens at the grassroots. There's something beautiful about that. When, uh, a group of people, a group of neighbors in a community come together and, and identify a need and then come and create their own water committee and they decide where their water points should be. They train their community in sanitation, hygiene, and, um, and there's just this sense of ownership so that after nine or 12 months of hard work, when something actually comes and impact starts happening because there's clean water, but there's also babies that aren't dying before they're supposed to and all these different things that start changing, they know that they did it and they did it together and that, um, that it was a grace to get to participate in that. And that's really what our story on the U.S. side has been too, which is like, yeah, we had a, a, you know, a Grammy-winning award band and an awesome 21-year-old, but we had no money. Handsome. Like we had no platform or we had platform, but we didn't have any credibility at the time. And so it really, it was really all about one person at a time. And we would have small gatherings in different cities and meet at coffee shops and, and discuss and start to bring people together to talk about these stories and to dream about ways that they can get involved in their own community. And then all of a sudden there's like this, 
this like dual rescue that's happening where, you know, in Africa, these communities are starting to see changes with health and dignity and flourishing. And then we get to start seeing changes in our own understanding of how our small actions actually do make a difference. Transformational is where we, we would throw around a lot and that was, uh, hard to describe. Um, but, uh, very important. Um, one of the things that I'd like to, I'm, I'm, I'll only ask just a couple more questions, and then what we'd love to do is just we're going to open it up so that you guys can ask some questions. Um, but uh, we were listening to a podcast in, in, uh, on one of our drives, and um, John O'Donohue, an Irish uh, poet, was, was being interviewed, and, and they were asking him to describe uh, where he lived. He was in a, a part of Northern Ireland that was a very kind of stark, rugged, almost careless kind of a place where um, it would seem that it would take quite a bit to find beauty in that space. Um, and he um, he brought out this phrase that he said, it was, um, it takes a watchful reverence. Um, you approach the place where you are with watchful reverence. Um, And I really liked that phrase because it reminded me quite a bit of the way that we approach a lot of the places where we work in Africa. Because when you're going to work with people who are the most marginalized, the most forgotten, uh, the ones with serious issues, serious problems in their community, um, puzzles to be figured out. Um, they would seem on the outset to not be very beautiful as places and even as people. Um, what does watchful reverence look like when you walk into a community in Africa like Marsabit? Well, I think... I think we're at a major disadvantage in the U.S. because what the media really portrays is what you're talking about is is this you know land of poverty and downtrodden or disadvantage or you know stark landscapes and and so if you go there with an eye for that you'll see it you'll find it um, but I think with like watchful reverence if you go with the belief that there is beauty and that there's so much there that you'll start to see compassion and creativity and leadership and agency and stunning beauty inside out everywhere. And you start to feel kind of the poverty of your own soul or your own landscape of where you've come from. And, and I think it's all about how you, what, what eyes you're choosing um, to come in with and how you're choosing to view the world. Um, and I think I had a, an advantage early on was that the voices and the influences um, in my early life were about looking for that, that reverence, like having watchful reverence and, and looking for the sacred and the beautiful in every person, the capacity of each person. And, um, and so I think that that has really helped me um, be able to just, that's a, that's a given. And I think blood water too, like when we bring people over to Africa, we don't call it a mission trip. We call it a vision trip. 
come and see and allow these communities to tell us what they love most about their home and their family, what they're proud of, and allows us to know them first for um, what they're proud of and, and, and later for what ails them. We don't we don't introduce ourselves as people with problems. Like, it's no different, you know. So it's being able to, to have a relationship with people and see, see the beautiful. Yeah. Um, let's, let's just tease that out just a little bit, a little bit more. Um, because I do think you're, what you're describing is that disadvantage. Um, you know, it is, it's kind of like us. If, if, if our friends introduced us, you know, you said, Hey, this is, this is Dan and he's slightly overweight. This is, um, you know, this is Phil and he's got, uh, he's kind of, his hair is thinning probably earlier than it should. Um, it's not really telling the whole story about a person, is it? It's not, it's not the way we would want the, the holistic view of who we are. And yet when we approach Africa, oftentimes the story that is told is, let me introduce you to Africa. There's, they have a severe issue with HIV and AIDS. Um, poverty is really a problem for them. They are suffering from um, not having access to clean water. When you, they're simply described in ways that are very inhuman um, and uh, and not very beautiful. And and it makes me think that you know they're not part of a winning team. Um, you know, I I recognize it's not lost on me that we're here. We're in in Denver, Colorado, and and it's a place where you have um, football. And winning football, we live in Nashville, Tennessee. We don't have winning football there. And uh, but there's something about uh, well, I'm a fair weather fan. Like I don't, I don't enjoy rooting for the team. I know that's they're going to lose, um, and so I don't. I haven't been to a Titans game since the first season they were in Nashville and they went to the Super Bowl. After that, I watched them crumble from afar. I don't know who they are. They're not my team. Um, To describe Africa as the losing team is to completely miss Africa. And so maybe what, what we can do before we take some questions is I would love for you to maybe... Describe the winning team in Africa. It's amazing. There are so many organizations and leaders that are from particular communities around sub-Saharan Africa who have risen up amidst a lot of challenges and are there in the trenches providing the services day in and day out people like I talked about in Marsabit and um and they they're they're not getting nearly as much attention as I I I think they deserve and um and the joy has been getting to partner with them and to be able to see um for us it's more privilege than anything to get to be a part of what they're doing um I think about Lawala Kenya which is um a village that uh, we came across in in 2005 by nature of a of a friend of two brothers that um came out of this uh village their uh parents um they got 
scholarship to the U.S. and the, these two brothers. And while they were in the U.S. for college, their parents died of HIV. And, um, and so they were immediately orphaned within a year. And their father's dying wish was for a clinic to be built in their home community. And this is a place where um, one in five community members were already HIV positive. And, um, and so this is, a, um, this is a community that had so many death sentences. And they rallied together, and they had a vision, and they were able to build a clinic, which is now a subdistrict hospital, which is now serving more than 1,000 people who are HIV positive, who are on life-saving medication, nutrition, microfinance, all of these different clean water, all these things that are so important. And they are outwardly um, living um, positively. They've fought against stigma. There's a woman, Leah, um, who is uh, an HIV-positive widow, um, and she, for many years, wasn't uh, comfortable telling people about her status, um, but she had the courage to step out and tell people, and um, she has been able to get other people tested. She has become one of the trainers in the water and sanitation hygiene um, classes. She is the change that's happening, and, that's, and, and the things that have happened in that particular community we're seeing all over. Um, it's, it's, it's a lost opportunity for us to not be able to, to just continue to, to work alongside and celebrate what's happening. It's crazy. Like, if you think about HIV 30 years ago and the scare and the, the death sentence and the everything that just felt like, the, like it was the, the most lost cause of all. And now the HIV community is actually having conversations about the end of AIDS. Like, now there are not women who are HIV positive who have to pass the, the virus to their babies. We have the ability to prevent that. We have the ability to claim an HIV-free generation. You know, we, when we started Blow Water, we're talking about a billion people who didn't have access to safe water. And that's like now down in the 700 millions or 600 millions because things are actually changing. And it's not, I mean, the agencies and what we're doing at a government level and huge, um, huge approaches are really important. And then there's these grassroots movements that are happening too that we're seeing and that's that's where I get really excited. Yeah. So that's the winning team and that's the team I think when you when you describe it it's like oh wow that's I might be interested in rooting for those folks. I might be interested in in wearing that that jersey. So um why don't we uh thanks Jenna. Yeah. Why don't we uh, just take some questions from you guys? Um, so if you've got a question, just raise your hand. We'll do this as if we were in a, uh, a wonderful school classroom, and uh, you'll just have to shout it out. So. Right.
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's actually quite a shame that the book has just my name on the cover because it is it is made up of thousands of stories of many young people who caught the vision and went and found a way to be able to be advocates for the these issues um that is that is that is the community aspect of bloodwater we've got hope who came in from Castle Rock, who I just met, who um, is passionate about clean water and came out. We've got Bryce, um, who has also been, she's a sophomore in high school, but she's been following Blood Water since she was in the seventh grade. And um, and these are stories that, um, that what we've really tried to do since day one is is not to encourage people to go start their own nonprofits, which is the most hypocritical thing we could say because we went and started our own nonprofit, but, but the encouragement is, where are your feet today? Like, who are the people, who are the, who are, who's your Marsabit? Like, who are the people in your proximity? And it might be, it might be here, it might be somebody, somewhere else in the world. Um, but to start there and to not deny um, what great gifts are already being living, lived out. I talk in the book a lot about my time. I spent all my um, evenings in high school at a homeless shelter because there was something about that that mattered to me. And really the jump from homeless shelter to Africa was just the theme of people who have been overlooked. And so that's my 1,000 wells in a lot of ways. But, um, but we've actually, we've really tried to encourage people to, before you start something, go find out if there are other people who are already doing it and see if you can go support them. And that's a lot of what, you know, we kind of originally thought, oh yeah, we'll drill wells in Africa. Well, there are already great African organizations doing great work. Let's be a fuel for them and support them in the gaps that they don't have the capacity to, to do on their own. And, um, and let's be partners in it. Um, I have not had direct um, interaction in particular with uh, Chinese intervention or Muslim ones. Um, what I've learned is that um, just from my vantage point, it's not an expert in any way, it's just that I've seen, um, I've seen communities in Africa just continue to be the recipients of other people's agendas. And I think that that's um, very difficult. And, and we, we are wrapped up in it too, trying so hard in every way, shape, and form to ensure that what we're doing is, is really um, in response to what a community or a partner has already named. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's challenging and it's very difficult um, to, for me, ha- coming out as an idealistic 21-year-old was to realize that um, not everyone does things just for the good and, um, and that it's just always a lot more complicated. And even in my own heart, you know, having to check my intentions along the way. Um, and so I think it's just something we have to continue to face in our realities and make sure that we're still knowing a place um, and really knowing it, not just them telling us what they think we want to hear, but that we're there long enough and through it all that there's a 
transparency and intimacy and honesty that allows us to make sure that we are as close to true partners as we can be. Yeah, and I do think there's also a there's a dignity piece involved in uh, in when a when a, a commun- when China comes into a a country and says we'll, we'll give you this if you would give you know and they start pulling resources out. Um, often the, the response is is or the acceptance of of, a, of an African country to do that is is often born out of um, you know, that sense that they they've lacked a certain kind of dignity for a long long time and um and so it's easy to make those choices if they don't think that they're worth anything if they don't think that they have the ability to um utilize those resources on their own and leverage them and create something great on their own um and i think that maybe is the the place where blood water steps in what we are doing in that world is is affirming dignity you know when somebody is able to um elevate their own community um they're far less apt to see kind of the dangling carrot and go, we have to do that. Because all of a sudden they can say, oh, you know what, there are other options. We actually can use our own hands. We actually could create industry and create um, the means to build our own community and uh, build our own infrastructure. Uh, and so I think that, but that only comes when a community is affirmed in their dignity um, through taking ownership in the ways that they, they develop their own villages, their own landscapes. So that's what I would say is why blood waters matter matters in that story. But other question? Yeah. So let me just repeat the question for everybody so you can hear that. She was just asking, um, at, you know, at what point, like, she got to this year, um, did you finally go, I'm ready to write the story, or it's time to write the story? I think it was a, f- a few years ago, um, having been maybe eight years into the story, and just um, realizing that I've had this front seat to a drama that's been played out that... Um, I really wanted to be able to share with others these stories of the people in Africa, of, of communities coming around in the U.S. to making something happen. It's like, it's like this audacious goal that really shouldn't have happened or shouldn't have come together, and it did. And, um, and I, I, f- I really wanted to make sure that I could, again, to at least take a picture of the Grand Canyon, <laughs> even if that's but a shadow of it. And, um, and I honestly, I, I, I struggled in, as a leader, um, with a lot of nonprofit stories that seemed so perfect. And I kept wondering if, are we the, what, are we just like doing it wrong? Like, why is it that everyone's story is so shiny and ours is actually kind of battered and bruised and beautiful because of it. And so I just, I wanted to maybe be one more voice that was going to offer the honesty of how hard it is to do a good thing in the world, but also the hope and the confidence that it's worth it. Um, and, and so that was, that was the commitment I made from, from the beginning of it. And I, I love that you asked if in the last year, it's, it's been a lot longer, <laughs> unfortunately, I thought it would be a year too, but, um, it's been about a, it's been about a two year process for, for, from kind of start to finish. So it feels good to be here with you guys. <laughs> well, uh, we'll take uh, maybe two more questions and then uh, we'll finish up. And Jenna is going to sign some books. And uh, yeah. 
continue growing and seek vision to do big things or great things done with, with love, um, one of the biggest difficulties and challenges is saying yes to the right things and saying no to the right things. Um, so what would be some stories you would care to share about the things you had to say no to and some of the things you had to say yes to? So how do you diver- differentiate, you know, in the midst of, of a lot of great things and good things, do you differentiate between the ones you have to say yes to and the ones you say no to? Um, and what are the stories uh, surrounding maybe one of those experiences? I mean, I think that that is the general theme of the book, which is I set out to save the world and I kind of think I thought I was going to be able to do it, which sounds so weird to say today, but... I mean, that's the beauty of idealism is that you can see the world for how it ought to be and you don't see the challenges of how hard it is to get there. And you don't have the humility to realize that you're just one literal drop in the bucket. Um, but I think uh, what I think what I've learned in my story has been that um, that it's you can't you can't achieve total justice <laughs> like I can't. We, we can't actually end HIV in sub-Saharan Africa with blood water alone or provide water for everybody. But this concept of proximate justice, basically meaning that, um, you know, even though you can't do everything, something still matters. And, and I, I think, honestly, I've talked about it before and it's in the book, but I talk about, I think Lawala is one of the best examples for me, this one community where we're serving a bunch of different, different places, but I've, been able to be witness to what happens when you stay with it in one place for nearly 10 years and support um, support the growth and flourishing of one community. And, and that's, that's hard because it's not yes to all of these other places that also have terrible, you know, situations um, and great opportunities um, for partnership. But but there's this one place that is forever changed and on a trajectory that is different because of that yes that we as an organization made um, and stayed with it. And um, and so I think that it, I think you have to just um, uh, change your definition of success. And and if it if it alters to the small and the one at a time and the again where your feet are today and where you're where you have proximity, I think that's where it matters, like the kids you take and that you work with. It's not going to be every student or every high schooler that is going to be transformed, but the ones that you are working with and saying yes to over and over again. And again, like what I was saying earlier, it's sometimes you just want to be able to hop to the next thing. It's like, there's so many causes that I care about. Like, I, but it, but staying with it and saying, okay, this is, I'm, I'm in, I'm here. I'm going to stay with it. I think it's really hard because everything about our world is teaching us to just squirrel. Yeah. You know, so it's like, we don't have the muscles, like even in our brain and and our souls to be able to stay and keep saying yes to the same thing. We can hardly like keep our Friday night commitments. Like (laughs) it's tough. So I don't know if you. Yeah, no, that's great. I'd. Don't have anything to add. Uh, one more question, and then, uh, yeah.
similar rhythm you guys have been able to find in these communities to get these things continuing to go? We're, we're constantly asking people for money. <laughs> and, and fortunately, people are saying yes and giving us money, which is an important part of what we do. We don't get to do it without the community people supporting it. So. so on the African side of the work that we do, the sustainability question really matters to us. And that's why we are not doing our own projects, but that we are actually investing in the leaders who are already there and who will probably be there for the long haul. And, um, like wells are a really sexy thing to raise money for and to support. Um, the thing that's the hardest, but is actually more valuable is, um, assisting in the behavior change of a community. And so, I mean, water, if you bring it to a community, will be able to help reduce, um, uh, incidences of, of diarrhea for children under the age of five, you know, by less than 20%. But, if you bring that water with hand washing and sanitation um, and communities that are actually practicing those things, you can look at more of like a 60%. Um, and so it's, again, it forces you to then have the community be engaged and be a part of it. And so we're not the ones doing that, but what we're doing is we're providing funds in the areas where they don't have the support to do that back-end work because American donors aren't as excited about that. Um, but our sustainability plan is basically investing in local civil society organizations and helping them be there for the long haul. And then on the U.S. side, for ourselves as our own nonprofit, because basically we're raising funds and then giving funds, um, but the, the raising and the sustainability for us, and this has been an, a lesson of ups and downs, it's all about relationships. And it's all about keeping and nurturing and building those relationships. And um, everybody that we have in Bloodwater today that has supported us, um, we actually have the capacity to continue to grow and do mighty things in Africa with just those people because of, of loyalty and commitment in that way. So it's taking care of the people who um, have come alongside and being in relationship with them as opposed to commodifying it. And there, there is also a, a creativity element that, that really matters. Um, you know, one of our, our values is teachability. Um, we learn a great deal from the people that hear the Bloodwater story and then take that out and do different things with it. Um, so if that's, you know, they find a creative way to, to incorporate that into their own story. And, and, and we learn from that. We get inspired by that, and that fuels the continuation of us being able to tell that story. Um, and so we, you know, when we first started, most of our, our donors were, were kids that were doing lemonade stands and growing tomatoes. And, um, you know, we would get a million dollars, but all in donations under $50. So it was always kids. And it was a wonderful thing for us because it meant that there are kids that are entering the conversation about, um, helping someone that isn't themselves in a lot of ways, you know? So, um, that's, that's truly mattered. And so we, we love that creativity piece, which, which really does allow us to be sustainable in the way that we, um, we keep telling the Bloodwater story and the story of our friends who are the winning team. So, um, thank you for your questions. Thank you guys. Thank you, Jenna. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.